and welcome to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. We have been hearing for decades that the Republican Party needed to get its act together on outreach to Hispanic voters, or they would be relegated to the dustbin of electoral history. In 2013, after Mitt Romney's presidential defeat, there was this moment of reckoning around Republican efforts to appeal to Latinos. The consultant class talked about Romney's suggestion that illegal immigrants self-deport as the case in point of why the GOP was going to be doomed to minority status. And so congressional Republicans tried doing the right thing. They worked on comprehensive immigration reform, but then things got hard and they gave up and along comes Donald Trump. Now, he completely disregards the squishy Chamber of Commerce consensus, openly insults everyone coming here from the southern border, and campaigns on building the wall. Then, he not only defeats nearly a dozen rising stars in the Republican primaries, but goes on to win the presidency. Now, fast forward to 2020. Trump lost his bid for re-election against Joe Biden, fair and square, but the autopsy for Republicans this time isn't all that bad. In fact, if shoring up support amongst racial minorities was priority number one from the 2013 autopsy, well then things are looking up. And the messy truth of it is that Donald Trump and his brand of conservative politics, let's just call it Trumpism, it had a lot to do with it. Joining me today to try and make sense of this is my co-host, Shoshana Weissman. She's a fellow at the R Street Institute and out of Lexington, Kentucky, I am thrilled to welcome Daniel DiMartino. He's a Venezuelan freedom advocate, economist, and senior contributor to Young Voices. Daniel, thanks for joining right now. Thanks so much to you and Shoshana. Great to talk to you guys. Absolutely. Now we have a quick request for everybody listening. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button for the show on YouTube, down below, on your podcatcher, and follow us on Twitter at RightlyAJ, like us, and uh, follow us on Facebook at RightlyAJ. Well, I don't know what you do for fun on the weekend, but I spent my weekend with a piece in New York Magazine about the takeaways from the 2020 election results for Republicans. And we have a lot more information now than we did just a few months ago on how individuals voted and also precinct level data. Now, New York Mag interviewed David Shore. He's a Democratic operative and data analyst, a pretty socialist guy for the record. And long story short, Democrats won the turnout game. They got more people out to the polls. But Donald Trump's GOP expanded their coalition by persuading a record number of minority voters to break with Democrats. The walkaway thing might actually be working. Now, Daniel, I guess just to start with you, if only there had been somebody out there telling them that socialism means very different things to Hispanic voters in South Florida than it does to Brooklynite hipsters who think reading Karl Marx substitutes for a personality. Why did no one do that? Look, I've, I've been saying since two years ago about how Venezuelans, you know, I come from Venezuela, uh, we oppose these, these kinds of ideas. And it's not just about the policies, it's also about the rhetoric, right? And, and Democrats now openly identifying with, with socialism as an ideology, it's a huge turnoff for anybody who comes from a former socialist country. Uh, and not just that, right? It's, it's the rhetoric around crime. Most people from Latin America come from very crime-infested places, not just Venezuelans, Central Americans, Mexicans, Colombians, uh, everybody from Latin America is escaping crime. So they're obviously going to be uh, attracted by a law and order message. And that's what we saw in 2020. And of course, Trump made gains with Hispanics because of that. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I think from, from where you're from in Venezuela, like there is not much distinction between 
criminal regimes, right, and militias and, and, you know, a government that harms and abuses its people and socialism. It's all part of one thing. And you end up with lawlessness and you end up with a totalitarian government. It all meshes together. And all, I think, Americans who are just now toying with this idea of socialism, I don't know, they just view it as being nice to people. Like, that's like the depth of the of the ideology here. Yeah, and I'll add that. I think I think that the shallowness is a part of it. Even the people who criticize it sometimes, you know, I, I think it's kind of both ways that people like to label everything socialism um, for good, for better or for worse. But Daniel, how do you see it, you know, as someone who lived in a socialist country? Look, I, I do think that some Democrats pose a huge danger to the future of the United States. Uh, I think that people like Bernie Sanders, like Ilhan Omar, uh, like even AOC, if they had the chance, if they had all the control over all the branches of government, they would enact the agenda that Hugo Chavez enacted in Venezuela. I have no doubt of that because that's what they openly propose. And, and that's why these people are not even able to condemn the dictators that we're comparing them against. So... You know, the facts speak for themselves, and that's why a lot of Venezuelans are just never going to vote for the Democrats, because those people, those leftists, have a, a place in the Democratic coalition. And, yeah, and, and we Daniel, cannot- it kind of goes beyond Venezuelans, right? Because a lot of, a lot of folks in conservative circles will talk about, and, and you do this as well, um, that Venezuelans are sort of a natural Republican constituency. Um, and then there's also this conversation about it being only about Florida. But this piece in New York Mag and David Shore's uh, uh, breakdown of the data, like, yes, it was 8 to 9% of Hispanics broke away from uh, the Democrats in 2020 across the country. But the numbers were just like even more widespread and large in Florida, in Texas, even up north. Like this is a national problem for Democrats and probably shouldn't be con confined just to talking about people who came here from Venezuela or Colombia. It's a bigger thing. Right. It's it's not just from Venezuela and Colombia. It is definitely stronger in, in from people with, uh, who come from socialist countries, right? So the margin shifts that we saw in places like Doral are 40 points, right? Not eight or nine. Uh, but but it's happening everywhere around the country because of this law and order message, because of the message focusing on the economy, on on, on people, Latinos and, and immigrants in general, Asians, people of any kind of, of uh, immigrant background. Our natural order part of it is really interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask. Um, so, Daniel, what do you so for the law and order side? Sometimes I think it's a bit of lawlessness in the law and order message, saying that government can kind of do what it wants. And even like you know, under under President Trump, like immigration stuff didn't work out so great. Like we, um, I don't think there was a big decrease in illegal immigrants from the data I've seen. But also, like they went after lower crimes because of. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the policy, but basically it's uh, going after everyone except the highest risks and, and the most violent criminals, which doesn't seem that great. But like, did that play a role with how people from these countries and people like yourself um, saw, you know, the, the right versus the left? Did, did that play any role? Look, uh, illegal immigration is not... A Obviously, nobody wants more illegal immigration. That's not a thing. Uh, but people who have immigrant families and people who, for example, have a family member who is on DACA. I've been able to meet many people, even in Kentucky, who are on DACA uh, and who have American friends and who have other citizens who are part of their family. 
they're obviously going to care about those things. And I think that the GOP was very smart about the messaging during the 2020 campaign. They had smart Spanish campaigns. They uh, appealed to specific national origin constituencies. They didn't appeal to Hispanics. They appealed to Colombian Americans, to Venezuelan Americans, to Cuban Americans, Mexican Americans, because they knew that each one of these groups cares about different things, foreign policy, crime, socialism, et cetera, right? Yeah, and that's one of the things that they uh, they had kind of zeroed in on with this breakdown of Hispanic voters leaving the, the Democratic coalition in 2020 was the idea that they actually really would like their cities to be safe. Like, go figure, like that's what you come to this country for is political stability and not to be living amongst riots. And I, I remember in the summer of 2020, I was looking at major cities burning um, during the Black Lives Matter, uh, the peak of those protests and those riots. And like, I, I get it, but the, the, you had white Democrats and white city mayors, right? Like telling people like, you gotta go on board with this and get on board with this or you're not part of the Democratic coalition. And I think most people came into this country, particularly Hispanics, like looking for calm, looking for security. They would like to own a home. They wanna be a shopkeeper. And if your party is the one that says, you need to be okay with your city burning down for the sake of social justice, you're not gonna stick around in that coalition very long. Yeah, and I'll add there too that um, I, I wanna say I've seen reports that said that like defund the police was just not a good message. It wasn't from a messaging standpoint effective. And no, I'm all for criminal justice reform, but like that's not a message that's gonna get people on board because people As defund don't the get police it. goes up, Hispanic support goes down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's not gonna work. Um, but you know, there's another forgotten issue that was, uh, I think that was behind a lot of the Latino increased support in Texas especially in the in the Rio Grande Valley and that is the energy issue that we saw very clearly differences between Biden and Trump on supporting uh, oil drilling in Texas oil drilling in other parts of the country and a lot of people work in that industry and Biden there you go now he's president and he's actually following through with these energy regulations that are destroying jobs and people care about their jobs more than anything else more than immigration more than any kind of other issue right yeah, there was this, um, so another article in my, in my reads, there was this piece in the New York Times called like the vexing question for Democrats. What is driving Hispanic men to the Republican Party? And it was this very thing, which was a guy talking about the, the men in his community who would like to be working on an oil pipeline right now, but now they can't. Like those are their jobs. And it was like the conclusion of the New York Times here was the vexing question for Democrats is why do Hispanics like to work? Like they want to have jobs, they want to pay their own rent, and they didn't come here to have someone else pay it for them. And that's, it's a cultural thing, and like that's good, and I feel like we should be excited about that. But either Republicans don't acknowledge it, and Democrats don't either. Well, I think the Republicans are acknowledging, and, and that's why they they made gains, right? Um, I think that the issue that we need to be talking more about is immigration as, as a policy about why it's economically beneficial for the country, why it's not true that Republicans are doomed if more immigrants come to this country, and, and the history of it. I think that there's a lot of myths that we have to debunk and that many Republicans are hurting the party by talking negatively Daniel, about immigrants. I, dis I disagree yeah. with this, though. Really? I think that this gain of 8 to 9% um, in Hispanic votes for Trump is largely an effect of Democrats pushing people away. But I do not see a Republican Party that is actually openly saying like, yes, come to us. Like we oh, yeah. actually want 
the Latino vote. I feel like they just sort of received these people because there yeah. was no other place to go. And the Republican Party has not been opening in its rhetoric at all. Yeah, and we should. I mean, honestly, one of the big issues that I work on occupational licensing reform, as I will always talk about, but um, I've been working on um, enabling like immigrant doctors to work here because a wildly high proportion of our healthcare workforce is made up of immigrants, but yeah. we make it so hard for them to work here. The processes, they have to get relicensed and things they might already know. Like, Republicans should look at that and go like, how about we fix that? Because it's more access to care, jobs for the people who do these jobs, and like let people come here and succeed, let alone other fields where it's going to be a similar issue with the licensing or other regulations. Right, because I mean, don't you think that there is an issue within the Republican Party about believing that Hispanics who come here to this country, whether illegally or legally, are just leeching off the system? Oh, I remember Daniel knocking on doors back when I did grassroots work, and the number one thing that people said to me when they were being told about Social Security insolvency was that it was being pillaged by immigrants, yeah. that they were the ones who were causing all the problems and all the shortfalls. And I, I don't feel like what you mentioned about Republicans and their views on Latinos and work. I don't think that the voters instinctively do feel that way. I think that the, the Republican elites feel that way but not everybody who's voting. Well, you know, Stephen, most Republicans agree with giving even citizenship to people on DACA in the United States, uh, according to the Pew Research Center. So I, I have to disagree that, for, that Republicans are not open to immigration as voters, and even less as, as a messaging strategy, right? If, it's, if something's clear from 2020 is that there was a concerted GOP effort from the RNC, from the Trump campaign, to appeal to Hispanic voters and show that they are accepted within the coalition, whether they still have their bad immigration views, in my opinion, that, that's a different thing. Um, but yeah, obviously, it's not true that immigrants are ravaging Social Security because uh, people who are here with who are not citizens are not eligible for Social Security. Oh, and they end up paying into a lot of like our, our, our welfare systems, you know, not disparaging the welfare systems. There might be problems in it, but they pay into it. And a lot of times these people retire in their home countries. So they end up in many cases paying more in than they'll ever take out yeah. if they become legal. So there's a lot of oddities here. But I agree with both of you that I think there's not everyone understands the depth of these issues. A lot of people who have used, I mean, I guess it's natural human nature to not like be a dork and research every little thing inside and out, but there's a lot of depth on a lot of these issues. Yeah, and that's where the messiness of the Republican Party I think is really interesting yeah. because there is this sort of knee-jerk reaction to say that Donald Trump was an incredibly right-wing president. On paper, he was actually pretty moderate and he was not particularly ideological. He really scrambled Republican orthodoxy. We've been talking about that for several years. Like with the issue of Social Security, he came out in defense of it. And that's something that Republicans have been fighting against for decades. And that's the kind of party that I came up in, which was privatized Social Security, yeah. everybody. But Donald Trump realized that people want it and also realized that people had a perception that it was going away right. because of things like immigration that was unchecked. And Daniel, I would like to see a Republican Party reorient around defending Social Security and saying the only way to pay for it is immigrants. Yeah. These are the only people who are having children <laughs> and well, are going you know, to actually produce I, I workers. Think, I think that, um, well, the Social Security issue, that's going to come up regardless of whether <laughs> Republicans support or oppose it. And so I'm actually not that worried about that just because the, the financial structure of it 
is, is going to force us to deal with the entitlement problem. Uh, but with immigration, yes, we should be reorienting the GOP towards policies that are good for the economy, that are good for assimilation of immigrants, and, and that are good for Americans in, in general, right? Not just the immigrants. Uh, Shoshana brought up an, an amazing policy, which is to help people with foreign credentials exercise their professions in America. Can you imagine what Americans could do if they had better healthcare, cheaper healthcare? That's better for everybody, right? Uh, well, except perhaps the doctors' unions. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> right, which is, which is a big part of the, of the healthcare problem here. But it's not just with, with licensing, it's with legal high-skilled immigration. This country makes it so difficult for anybody with skills from abroad to come and makes it so easy for anybody who just has a distant family member to immigrate. And that's not how immigration should work. That's not how smart countries do it. That's not how Canada does it. That's not how Australia does it. Two thirds of the immigrant populations in Canada and Australia have college degrees. That is one third in the United States. Because here, it's so easy to come as, as a family member and so hard to come as a, as a skilled immigrant. And that has to change. Yeah, I, I feel like particularly on the right, we are really torn between whether or not uh, we want to be focused on the issue of high-skilled immigration and really talking about the merits and talking about just lower immigration overall. Like Australia, you mentioned, like very selective immigration system. It's really hard to go to Australia and become a citizen. Same for Canada. But I feel like the left sort of talks about these countries as if they're open, just because they, they speak nicely about people from other countries, that those yeah. are the ideal. And I think that's what it comes down to, is just, are you nice about it? Yeah. Or are you mean about it? And, and Republicans have been mean meaner. about it. You know, it's like it, it, every other country looks nicer. It's kind of like you always want your, what your neighbor yeah. has. I think a lot of these issues do come down to that fundamental human nature of like, oh, that must be there. Because like everything I see of that is nice, even though I've never been there or talked to anyone from there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, look, they, they have selective systems and it's definitely hard for immigrants who don't have skills at all to, to immigrate to Canada or Australia. Yet they admit many more immigrants as proportion of their population than the United States. So they admit the immigrants that have the most potential to, you know, speak English, that have the most potential to contribute to the economy and help the native workers there. And, and all the research supports this. Look, the, the restrictions that we have here in the United States for high-skilled visas for, for companies like the H-1B visa that everybody hates, but nobody knows how it works. Uh, are proven by research from many economists to lead to offshoring, that reducing the number of visas in the United States leads companies to relocate to Canada, Australia, China, because it's easier for multinationals to bring the best skilled people into their companies in those countries than in America. Hot take. I think that conservatives want to hurt big tech companies and big industries and their use of H-1B visas yeah. and immigrants purely on as a culture war issue. Like oh, they yeah. just, they want to hurt the libs, right, who are bringing in immigrants to work at their tech companies. And that's what this is really about. It's just about sentiment uh, and, and posture yeah. rather than the I, merits I of the argument. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. Yep. 
I'll also add um, Alex Narazza at um, the Cato Institute has a lot of work here that I kind of like that gets into some of the details. And it doesn't even, you know, his work's really good. And I don't think it brings you to one conclusion or another, except that immigration tends to work out for us. It's one of those things that, like, when we have lots of immigrants, it tends to work out. Um, but also, uh, one thing Daniel brought up that I really liked is about the complexity of getting H-1B visas, because regulatory complexity is just going to reduce access. Um, and that's not a good thing. If, if we want, you know, we should have systems that work well. Um, we shouldn't prevent immigrants from working here one way or the other. And we do lots of that. So even when we bring immigrants here, we're not like, hey, opportunity, let's get to work. Let's do cool stuff together. Bring your expertise. We're like, well, you'll have to wait some years and maybe then you'll be allowed to do that. And that's crap. Like, we shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> yeah, especially to, to the highest skilled people. Look, there, yeah. there's, there's one Nobel Prize winner who got denied one of the green cards uh, that, that had applied during Trump's presidency. Like, you know, we, we're seeing complexity to a degree that is in a, inimaginable in the immigration system. And it takes so long. It, ta it costs so much money. So even if we disagree on how the immigration system should look or how we should change it, we should make it simpler for everybody. Yeah. Less costly for the government, less costly for the immigrants. Yeah, I want to see an immigration system and an idea form on the right of like really sort of being ruthlessly pragmatic about yeah. it and saying like, we have problems in this country. One of them is our social safety net shortfalls. We can't actually pay for you to live comfortably in old age if people are not going to be having children and producing more workers to pay for it. So we need to bring people in. Uh, we also have dying cities all over the country, uh, particularly in the, in the heartland, right? Is there a case to be made for thinking about immigration in a very controlled way, not going with spontaneous order, not saying like, hey, welcome to America, go wherever you want, but saying, actually, we would like you to be here, but you're headed to Detroit. <laughs> And you have to live there for five years. So on that note, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not cities, but um, immigrants uh, immigrants in the uh, healthcare profession uh -huh. tend to work in rural areas. And we have an enormous rural health problem. Why is that? I don't know. I don't think research has figured out why, except that they do. Maybe the needs are in there. I, like, I actually have a knows. theory about that. Of uh, course yeah, you no, do. It is because there's... Uh, so it's harder for, for those areas to find doctors, right? And immigrants are just more willing to move and to take the extra effort to make sure that they're able to stay in the United States. And so an immigrant might say, you know, if, if what it takes to become an American is to live five years in Alaska, I'll do it. That sounds pretty great. I mean, there's great mountains in Alaska, too. I'm just saying as a hiker. But <laughs> an, yeah. an entire nation of hikers. But I mean, Daniel, what do you think of that idea, like really being very controlling and open at the same time about immigration so that we are accomplishing national goals whilst being just incredibly open as a country to more people coming here. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And there are many ideas to, to that end. There are both ideas to increase access in the healthcare sector. You know, Senator Todd Young and former Senator Purdue had a bill to, to give green cards to immigrant healthcare workers so that we had more doctors, nurses, et cetera. But then there's also the, the Heartland visa idea uh, that, that's proposed in the Democratic bill, but it's, it's an idea from, from Utah Republicans that would give states the control over immigration policy to a, to a degree. So states would be given some number of green cards and then they would decide how to hand them out. I personally have the idea to make sure that even churches were able to sponsor immigrants, mm -hmm. that uh, states could give out these uh, visas to nonprofit organizations and that they could decide then who comes into the United States. Communities, cities could vote, and then there would be both 
community buying, church buying, assimilation work together, and it will be much better for the immigrants and the communities. There is an element of this, the political football part of immigration, and sort of kicking the can down the road on solving our broken system and trying to stop the constant state of crisis that we have. As we are talking, the news is being driven uh, by the border crisis, right? There is another wave of, of, of children migrants flooding the border and, and living in camps, and they are suffering, the conditions are not good, um, and it is, it is a travesty, and it doesn't look good for America either. Um, we are constantly caught in this loop of, of doom problem solving, and I feel like the people who don't want to solve it do so because their voters think that all new people coming into the country are political weapons, like they yeah. are being used as voters for one side or the other. I grew up in a time where the media and the Democrats were constantly talking about whites are gonna be a minority by 2035, and every person who comes into the country is making the GOP more irrelevant. And so Republican voters go, oh, so they're importing Democrats. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what this is really about, and it's ugly. And I don't know if we are going to be able to overcome that because Daniel, even you, you've been saying like Venezuelans are potential Republicans. Is that counterproductive? Yeah. Like what if that yeah. just digs in Democrats on their positions? It, look, it, it is totally counterproductive. Uh, it brings forces a narrative among immigrants themselves that they shouldn't vote for the GOP. Imagine if the GOP was saying that about just black voters, right? It would reinforce a narrative among black voters to not vote for the GOP. So we shouldn't be saying those things or believing them because it's not true. Today, the country is more more of a proportion of immigrants than, than since mm -hmm. early 20th century, yet Republicans are winning elections. Um, so it's all about messaging. It's all about different policies. Um, and there's no reason to believe that immigrants are more liberal than the natives. It's the opposite. Immigrants are more socially conservative than Americans born here. Oh, wow. uh, and that is because yeah. we come from countries that don't have abortion in many cases, you know, more pro-life. It, yeah. it happened to me here in Lexington even. I was door knocking for the GOP in, the, in 2020. And I met this African immigrant family in the Lexington suburbs. And they, I knew they were African based on their name, right? But then they also had a huge tattoo of the Virgin Mary in their door. Uh, it was like five feet. And so I immediately thought, okay, these people are Catholic. That's how I'm going to reach to them. And I told them, you know, are you pro-life? And they said, yes, of course I'm pro-life. Well, you know, here we have pro-life candidates in the GOP and we want to protect the right to life. But you know what they told me? That we care about life, not just for the unborn, but we also care about immigrants. We also care about coronavirus. We also care about all these other issues. Mm -hmm. So it's, we have to appeal to them in different ways. Well, so let's talk about ideology then, because a big part of this sort of David Shore breakdown of, of voters who are leaving the GOP, like this, or leaving the Democratic Party, this was all about whether or not the Democrats had become too ideological and too neat in ordering their views. All different groups, all right, so Hispanics, blacks, whites, roughly 40% are conservative, 35 are moderate, and 25% of those groups are liberal. And that is across most of American life. But it is white voters who have become really, really partisan 
instead of ideological, right? They've taken like, I am liberal, so I'm a Democrat, or I am conservative, so I'm a Republican, to really far extents. You have like a solid split in the black community between people who identify as conservative and liberal, but they still are willing to vote either way. Whites really sort based on party, and it's made things extreme. And I don't think Hispanics jive with that at all. Like exactly what you were saying, Daniel, they have a little bit more of an eclectic view of politics, whereas I think white liberals want everything to be very neat and orderly. You have to subscribe to critical race theory and public school funding, and you have to subscribe to defund the police, or you're not a Democrat. I, th I think it's a problem, um, and, and it's true that the data says that the Democrats have become more ideologically pure and, and radical over time, and, and that's right turning off people, right? It's turning off people who support school choice, who support uh, more jobs for their communities. And, and that's why you see very fewer conservative Democrats in Congress. And that's why Democrats are having much of a more, more of a trouble now in Congress than they did in the 20th century. Um, how the GOP manages to make sure that they can uh, capture these voters permanently, how can they especially break Democrats hold on, on black voters? That, that's harder to, to know. Personally, I know uh, that the way to break the hold among immigrant voters, whether they're Hispanic, whether they're Asian, is to continue pushing the, the message of law and order and the economy, but also to be more open about immigration. How are you going to convince somebody whose sibling is on DACA to vote for you, regardless of what your personal interest might be as a voter, if the person that you're voting for wants to deport your sibling? That's not going to happen. Yeah. More than anything else. And I'll add to, I've seen different studies. Like one said that basically second generation immigrants are basically kind of more like their communities politically than their parents, if there's any disparity at first on politics. And also that, um, you know, basically it's more of that kind of thing, uh, more that immigrants kind of, when they come here, they kind of take up the political views of their communities. And I've talked about this before, but I really think that there's something to be said for the rural-urban divide, because I think depending on where they land, they're just going to like learn from the people around them, apply their own values and views too. But um, a lot of it, I think, has to do with that the left doesn't try very hard in rural areas many times, and the right doesn't try hard in cities. And it's kind of like, each party just doesn't try hard in every community, and they should. They should, what I always say is show up, show they care, and show solutions. So what do you think that looks like for, for different kinds of immigrant communities? Is it different than it is for, like, for people who are born here and in other communities? Is it something new? Yes, you're totally right with this, Shoshana. Uh, immigrants do take up the political beliefs of the communities they live in. And I think that this is actually an argument for the heartland visas to make sure that states with lower immigrant populations that are rural, like, say, South Dakota, Indiana, uh, you know, Montana, take up more immigrants so that these people will end up voting for the GOP, assimilating better, learning English more. Uh, that's actually one of the factors that determines English proficiency. It's whether these immigrants live among immigrants that speak their language, right? So it's much harder for somebody from Mexico to learn English in South Texas than it is in Kansas, right? Because they just have more people to speak Spanish with in South Texas than in Kansas. Yeah. Um, and, and then, yeah, from, from different countries, it's true that people from different countries have different ideologies and, and different political beliefs. It happens with people from socialist countries. Uh, you know, with Cubans, with Venezuelans, Colombians, but it also happens with Asians that, uh, and Europeans that come from former socialist nations. 
people from Vietnam, people from Taiwan, people from uh, you know Ukraine tend to vote more for the GOP because of that past experience. One of the, the problems that we sort of see with party polarization is actually an education divide. More educated voters are sorting out into the Democratic Party. Um, less educated voters are sorting out into the Republican Party. Um, and this is particularly an issue with white college educated whites going to the Democrats. But Daniel, you said that people start to match the communities in which they're living. And you had written in the Orlando Sentinel that with Venezuelans, nearly 58% have a college degree. Are they going to come to the United States, join communities that are more college educated, and then become Democrats instead of Republicans like you're saying? No, because uh, I'm actually, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that they match the communities they live in as seen geographically. Okay. And, and based on their past experiences, not necessarily their educational polarization beliefs. And, and as you say, yes, there's educational polarization in this country, but it is mainly among whites. It's not among blacks or Hispanics or Asians. Uh, Asians are actually the, the ethnic minority in the United States with most college degrees. 63% of them have a college degree, yet they voted more for Republicans than, say, blacks or, or, or other ethnic minorities. Because education, yes, the educational system in the United States has to change, and it's indoctrinated some people. But that's not going to erase my experience as a Venezuelan coming from a <laughs> socialist country. It's the opposite. Education, there, there are studies about the effect of colleges on, on ideology. And it's not so much that they make you leftist. Perhaps they do to some Americans who uh, don't have any ideology. But it makes conservatives more radical and it makes liberals more radical as well. You know, that's interesting. That kind of reminds me of work I've seen um, showing that basically when you're aggressive with something, it polarizes. So if you come and yell at a guy, hey, you're wrong, he's just going to be like, well, I'm just going to back off. But also the people around yelling are like, well, I'm with you because you're yelling at him. So it, it, it kind of sounds like that education has that effect. All I heard was white people must be stopped. Like, <laughs> they're making politics <laughs> so much worse for everybody. Um, people don't want to be aligned with parties purely based on ordering all their ideology together. Like, it doesn't all have to be neat. Yeah. Um, and I think that the more that you are engulfed in your education, you've been reading political science books like me over here, like you think that everything has to connect. Yeah. And that's just not how, how people think about their lives. And parties shouldn't be about that. Like, yeah. I, I, you and I both kind of came up in the Grover Norquist era, right? Like, that you had to sign the tax pledge to be yeah. a Republican lawmaker. Maybe that's not good. Like, maybe the Republican Party shouldn't be committed to a, a, a boundary, like a red line in the sand about this is the only thing that you can accept before you do anything else. That's not good for building strong, diverse parties. Yeah, but, you know, I will say at the same time, we were still big on big tents at the time. But I kind of feel like it's we've gone away from that a little bit. Like, I, you know, I think diversity is a real issue in both parties, diversity of ideas and accepting that diversity of ideas. But I'm wondering, like, I, I think more, I think Republicans who are into immigration reform and, and increasing immigration might be like, we might be more open to that now than years ago because I feel like, you know, you weren't allowed to say nice stuff in certain cases. I remember how bad uh, Jeb Bush got hit for saying that immigrating here illegally was an act of love, but sometimes families are in hard spots and you get it. Daniel, what do you make of it? Do you think that that we've been going in the right direction in the party on immigration or, or the wrong or just different? Uh, 
I, I tend to think that it's in the wrong direction because if you look at what, you know, the presidential debates in the Republican primary of 1980 between Bush father and Ronald Reagan, who were the main candidates then, uh, you see a totally different rhetoric around even illegal immigrants uh, and, and shutting down concerns about how, how they were a burden on fiscally on the government, wow. which they weren't. The science says they don't. It's, it's an incredible difference to what we hear today, what we saw in 1980 uh, about Mexican illegal immigrants even. So I think it's in the wrong direction. But if you see the support among Americans for solutions that are common sense, like increasing legal high-skilled immigration that is good for the economy, that is good for, for the party, it's two-thirds of Americans support increasing legal high-skilled immigration. And that includes two-thirds of Republicans. So it's not even a partisan issue. It's two-thirds across the political spectrum. So I think that as a political issue, that's something that could unify Republicans. Perhaps we can't unify about, around other things, but we should have some points in commonality and proposals. And I think legal high-skilled immigration should be one of them. I will say, though, I'm just curious when you saw, because you seem to know the history pretty well, as I, I should have figured you would, but um, when did the right start to move like more against immigration, illegal or, or otherwise? I'm just curious when that shift started to happen. Yeah, I, I believe it happened around the 90s. Uh, okay. That's uh, based on, on all I've read. Um, and it is part of, you know, the, a bigger wave of illegal immigration. Ronald Reagan legalized illegal immigrants in 1986. And illegal immigration didn't stop uh, because the border was not secured. And because mm -hmm. the way to stop illegal immigration is not just to secure the border. Unless you want to spend a trillion dollars a year trying to catch everybody and building a, a wall even through the desert and, and having, you know, hundreds of thousands of border patrol agents, that's just not, not going to happen. It's fiscally unsustainable. You have to create a legal path for people who come here illegally through the southern border that say Central America, give them some visas to work here temporarily and go back to their countries. Because all these people want to do, all, uh, you know, several, say 100,000 of them a year want to do is come here, work in Texas, work in Utah, work anywhere in the country and go back after a, a year. Well, Daniel, isn't the problem, the problem with that cuts against like the assimilation issue. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who come here just to be temporary neighbors to people in communities where, I don't know, you'd like your, your neighbor to be like speaking the same language as you. You'd like to actually be in community with people who are living around you. But you're talking about people passing through all the time who you have nothing in common with. I think that rubs people the wrong way when you're talking about people who are just gonna come here and then leave. I'll push back for a second. My dad, so I'm terrible at learning languages. I swear, I just can't learn other languages. <laughs> I've tried so hard. Even with coding, I, I struggle. But my dad grew up in Queens and he uh -huh. had friends who spoke like Chinese and Spanish and like his parents taught him Hebrew and Spanish a bit um, because we're, we're like, I'm like a Heinz 57. I'm like from everywhere. But like he and his friends would teach each other their languages. Sometimes you can really bond over those differences. You know? I made I made a great friend in my last neighborhood I lived in, uh, Venezuelan family. Yeah. We would grill, we would hang out <laughs> together and talk to each other through Google Translate. I love like, it. We would just, we would sit with our phones and talk to each other through them because I I'd just not been able to learn Spanish and his English was really bad. But we had a lot in common and it was great. Yeah. But that's not like the ideal. Like you really would like to be able to communicate. Right. And I feel like when you're talking about people coming here to work and then leave after three years, I don't know, like, is that the goal? Is the, or is the goal well, to build America with more citizens? It is not the goal of permanent immigration. It is not the goal to give these people a green card and make them citizens and give them the right to vote. I'm talking about temporary workers so that they don't come illegally. Yeah. Because 
everything is about costs and benefits. Yeah. If you want to stop illegal immigration and therefore reduce drugs trafficking, reduce criminals who sneak into the border, right? This, the criminals are never going to get through the, the legal immigration system, but they are mu much more likely to get through illegal immigrating, illegal, illegal immigration, right? So how do we change that equation? How do we make Americans safer? How do we make the economy better? Would it mean that we will have some people who work here temporarily and don't speak the language or, or mm -hmm. you know, you say they're not assimilating? Well, they're not going to become citizens. That's not their goal. And we already have 11 million illegal immigrants here not assimilating into the country. So would you rather have millions less illegal immigrants and some people going back to their countries yeah. and coming and, and going legally without criminals? I think that Americans would take that trade off a thousand times. I certainly would. And I, I think probably to wind, wind us down here, we got to talk real quick about the border situation. I mentioned the, the, the migrant kind of caravans and these, these um, hundreds and thousands of children, thousands of children on the border who are in these migrant camps. And this is not good. This is what we are constantly caught in is that doom loop of, of problem solving. Daniel, what do we need to do with the current border situation and what can Congress actually take action on that would make this better? So just to summarize the situation in the border for people who, who are not familiar, uh, children are coming unaccompanied to the border, showing up or trying to cross uh, to border agents. And what do you do at that point, right? It's not like you're going to tell the child to starve in the desert, right? You have to take them in. And so that's why they're, they are in what they, you know, the media criticized Trump for cages and, and jails, when in reality, it's just something you have to do when children come by themselves. So the question is, why are children coming by themselves? The reason is that they know their parents. If they come with their parents, they're all going to be deported. Or mm -hmm. if the children come alone, they're not going to be deported. And we can't because we're humans, right? We, we're not going to, uh, you know, violate human rights. Right. So how do we make sure that no more children come without violating their rights? I think that's the question. And I think that the answer should be having a legal pathway for the family to come and work. Because at the end, that family that is sending their child by themselves to the United States, what are they looking for? They're looking for a better future for their children. How do we make sure line, they have a legal chance? Yeah. Right. If, they, if there's no legal chance for people to have a better future for their children, they're going to violate the law. This is human nature. Mm -hmm. That's why people escape North Korea and try to do anything illegally, because they're trying to provide a better uh, future for their children. And yeah. the United States either finds a way to give them legally, or this is going to continue happening perpetually. How yeah. much you want to bet we're not going to find a way and, uh, just, uh, and just keep governing in a state of crisis forever. We like doing that as a country. Daniel DiMartino, thanks, man, for joining right now. It was so good to see you. Thank you. You too. All right. Now, every week we like to shine a light on what's happening on the interweb. And this week it was the hashtag high speed rail. It's been picking up speed. Now, why is that? Well, Vox had a story headlined Gen Z's high speed rail meme dream explained. Oh, thank goodness. It's been explained. Now, it included a 2013 map of the United States showing what a dream rail network might look like. Bold colored lines that connect Los Angeles and New York, Minneapolis and Miami, and even Vancouver to the Tijuana route. Now, the Vox story with the map, 
got a boost when Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg retweeted it saying, Gen Z is dreaming big. It's time we all did the same. To which, jo <laughs> to which Josh Barrow at Business Insider said, oh Jesus, not this stupid map. <laughs> oh, I feel the same way. And <laughs> Alfred Dwu, uh, now this guy is the one who designed the map. He says that this has come to be a litmus test on how you see high-speed rail as a transportation or political project. Expensive train in the middle of nowhere or an important part of mending urban, rural, and regional divides, he asks. Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts says, this doesn't have to be a dream. That high-speed rail is one of the smartest investments we can make right now. Coincidentally, he just reintroduced a bill to invest $205 billion over five years to create a nationwide high-speed rail network. Shoshana, are you excited for the Gen Z high-speed rail dream? Okay, so like one thing I liked on the map is that it would make it easier for me to get to Utah, and I'm very interested in any way that will make it easier. It goes direct to the mountains so that you yeah. can begin your hike right there. Yeah, I really like that. Beyond that, so I'm not, I'm not a transportation policy nerd. I kind of feel like this might be a meme that's like gonna become policy. Well, it is a meme. Like This has been going on for well over a decade. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of resent the idea that it's a, a Zoomer dream, like millennials used yeah. to be on this too. And it, I think what Vox kind of rightly pointed out is it is a measurement of whether or not you have given up on dreaming big. Like you, you have the map and it's ridiculous. No one's ever going to build this. This is never going to happen. They can't connect California together by high-speed rail. We can't connect the Eastern Corridor by it. So I think it's just to like, are you... A, a, a pragmatist and have you given up on the big dream or are you, you know? So I have <laughs> given up on the big dream, but like I'm, I'm open to stuff. Like I'm open to ways that will get me to mountain goats faster or like some parts of it look kind of interesting. I'm like, I could, I, I don't know, it like took you from California to Florida like that. I feel like there's better ways to do that. Well, I like the idea of high-speed rail. Like I'm definitely sort of a closet libertarian yeah. uh, supporter of the idea that I would like to take the train everywhere. But it's just not it's just not practical. And and the left who want this thing built, they're not even considering that it's their environmental review regulations yeah. like California's. It's gonna make it impossible. You will never get an EPA clearance for some of the stuff that you need to do. I know. I'm like thinking, like, aren't there bison there? Like, won't this kill like a lot yes. of bison? Like It'll it's fine. But, like, thousands of animals. And also, um, <laughs> eminent domain is like one real issue with it. Like you would have to eminent domain like the hell out of so many things and places. I I think it goes through national parks. Like looking at it, I'm pretty I could totally be wrong, but I think it goes through national parks. Like you can't do that. Again, like the bison, we're gonna kill the bison. Like, did didn't we already have a problem with like almost not having bison at one point, like we should be chill. Well, I hope the hipsters are really okay with 200 bison dying yeah. for the making of the connection to LA and New York City. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Ugh. I did find some good news this week, and you might be surprised at the source. It comes from comedian Sarah Silverman, longtime Democrat, now says she's turned off by the absolutistness of the party, all or nothing, and that elitist attitude is driving her away. And I've been thinking about this a lot, just in general. I, I just, I don't know that I want to be associated with any party. I really, I think I don't want to be associated with any party anymore. It just, it comes with too much baggage. 
This is good news. I always like hearing when a, a celebrity has come out against being involved in politics. Ex what she said is exactly right, and that's why it's going so viral, is like the Democratic Party in particular requires you to be incredibly ideological and support all things or you get canceled online. Like, I get it. That's not a good way to be. Yeah, like, so I agree with her, but she's been, like, one of the worst bears of this. Like, she's been out there doing that bad stuff for so long. I hope that it's genuine. But she's recovering. Like, that's <laughs> that's why it's the good news segment. More people are joining the political orphanage, and that yeah. that is something I value. Like, we talked about it with Daniel. Yeah. It, it, a political party should be about different people with different interests, but enough in common yeah. coming together to go against the other people. Yeah. But it is—it's just instead become very, very like doctrinal. And you should uh, be able to vote for good people over bad people, and it's not always clear. But you should be able to make that assessment yourself and not be like you know party line, party line. No. Good for Silverman. She is free. Shoshana, what's your good news? So I found this account yesterday and I'm in love. It's it's at Utah Updates. They had like a little issue, but like it's if you guys follow Jurassic Park updates, it's very similar. There are updates to Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, like they'll be like, you know, the T-Rex escaped. Um, we're trying to fix him eating people, stuff like that. And it's very much the same. They're like, um, you know, the Department of Transportation got bored, so they added a couple of new lanes to this highway, or Mitt Romney has escaped. I love this account. I love Utah. I love Utah politicians. So this is like very much my thing. Like they even had one for um, Spencer Cox, who shaves his head or is bald either way. But the governor there, what one, one way or the other, um, they tweeted something like, um, he actually shaves his head each morning to look more like his hero Vin Diesel. Like, I love this. It brings me so much joy. Was he that guy who cut like an ad with his Democratic yes. opponents where they He's were like, so wholesome. All, all kumbaya about it? He's That's a very little Utah. angel. He's so sweet and like, and it's not, you know, because Utah has Mike Lee, who's a little more partisan too, and Romney even has his moments being more partisan, but like, Spencer Cox really wants to be like that governor, governor, and he liked the tweet, and I'm like, yes, that's so cute. Well, I look forward to the day you get the key to Salt Lake City. It's coming. Yeah, better. <sighs> and on that positive note, that's all for this week on Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent, and we'll see you next Thursday.